The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Well, I uh, shared with you last week that I was preaching on T3s. This week they're through my system as of yesterday, I believe. Still happy. And uh, pain's heal- the foot's healing up fine. And so thank you for those of you who have thought of me during the week. Uh, very minor thing, but it's amazing how you take health for granted until something takes it away for a little bit, right? So praise the Lord for good health, and uh, for those of you who struggle, man, I, I pray for you as you come to mind that God will give you grace uh, through every situation and be your strength. I have a question for you today uh, that I want to start us off with, and uh, that is simply this. Have you ever been misunderstood? Yeah. I'm sure most of us can think back to a time where our intentions were good, our, our, our thoughts and our hopes were positive, but we were misunderstood, and it hurt because of that. And uh, what I need to confess today is that I know that throughout my life, I misunderstand God. And uh, I think back to my early teens when I first came to Christ in my early 20s, I started understanding the joy of what it means to be part of a church family. I got heavily involved with my church, different aspects of serving, Bible studies, missions. Had a really good time with church experience, and I, and I believe I grew in my love of the Lord in that time. But still there was something in my mind that I realized, although I was loving church and doing the good things that God had for me to do, that if I was completely honest, my love for the Lord would still be lacking. And there'd be part of me that, as a person who always likes to have fun and hopefully seek some adventure, that God in some way was a killjoy. And that was a misunderstanding on my part. And as I read more and more scripture, I'd read things that would make me realize that it's, it's me who has the problem, not God. <laughs> this chapter today, when we get into John 7, is talking about Jesus being our living water. And as I read passages like that, I just come across this, well, if God is a source of life and every good thing, why, why does my heart not resonate sometimes for him or with him? And, and I don't know where it was, but somewhere again in my early 20s, I heard a quote that if you're bored with your faith, you can be sure God is too. And that hit me because it wasn't about activity. It wasn't about what can I do in church? Where can I go to do missions? Because at the end of the day, If I wasn't in love with God more, rather than the environment that I could have as a Christian, that that I wasn't understanding him right. And I realized he wasn't my source of life as he wanted to be. And that was a big journey for me, starting to learn more and more what does it mean to walk in step with the Holy Spirit. And so today as we get into chapter 7, there is many different directions this sermon could have gone, as you can imagine when you're preaching on a chapter. I could have preached just totally about misunderstanding Jesus. Starting in chapter 6, some of the disciples don't really understand, and those who do, they just start deserting him. Many disciples desert him. Beginning of this chapter, chapter 7, if you open your Bibles, you'll see his, his brothers don't even believe in him and who he says he is. He goes to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, and it says the crowds are doubting and questioning about him. Then the people who live in Jerusalem, who have seen many miracles, who saw the man healed at the pool, don't believe in him. And then most of all, the Jewish leaders who are supposed to point people to Christ hate him. Could have had a whole message on that. Uh, What I have chose to speak on today, though, are are some of the things that we learn about Christ as we look at chapter 7. Things that we learn about his character, things that we learn about his reliance, 
and his provision for strength, what, who he relied on in his life, so that it hopefully encourages us in our life with Christ. And so uh, when you open up chapter 7, you'll see that uh, this takes place, it says, after this, referring to chapter 6, it says, after this. It doesn't give you a timeline, but we know it's about six months after Jesus had the uh, feeding of the 5,000, from fall till, till, I mean, from spring till fall time. And uh, we know now that it's going into the Feast of Tabernacles, and it's a time where all the men in Israel were required those three times a year to go to Jerusalem to celebrate. And so the Bible tells us that Jesus didn't really want to go back to Jerusalem. Who can blame him? They want to kill him. He was there, he healed someone on the Sabbath, and they misunderstand him. He doesn't want to go back. He'd rather stay in Galilee. And uh, as we read uh, chapter 7, we see his brothers coming to him who were told don't believe in him, uh, but they say this to him. Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. So the first thing they say is they talk about your disciples. His brothers know that there's a following that Jesus has. How could you not know that? There's hundreds, thousands of people who follow. They also know, and maybe they're trying to pry on a weakness that they think their brother might have because so many people have left. If you're here to show that you're God and all these people came, these thousands came to be fed, and now many of them, most of them leave, you must be devastated, brother. I'm reading into this a little bit, but because of that idea of saying they don't believe that he is who he says he is, I think they're, they're kind of saying, hey, go back to Jerusalem. Maybe you can build up your following. They don't understand the heart of their brothers. He, they say, no one who wants to become a public figure. As if that's Jesus' motive, that he wants crowds, that he wants everybody to go, hey, Jesus, you're the best. It's not what he's there for. Makes me think of when David went to go see his brothers. If you remember the story, David's father, Jesse, sends him up to go see his brothers who are fighting or supposed to be fighting, but they're really just acting cowardly as they see Goliath every day. And they're just going up to the battlefront's victory cries, and then Goliath comes out and says, Give me your man, and I will defeat him. And they, wah, 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 and they all go back, and they're scared. That's the situation that David comes into, and David asks, What's happening? And they say, David... You're just a troublemaker. You just want to get into the midst of the problem here. And, you know, they misunderstand David. David just couldn't stand to see that his God was being defamed by a Philistine. In a similar way, they're making a wrong judgment about Jesus. If you want to be famous, why don't you go? And I, I'm sure they wouldn't mind the fame. The fame kind of passes on to your family, right? Oh, you're Jesus' brother. Cool. Right? So since you do these things, show yourself to the world. Some people would say, and when I read this too, it right away reminds me of when Jesus first started ministry. It says he was baptized. The Spirit took him into the desert, and the Satan tempted him there. And one of the temptations was to go to Jerusalem, go to the top of the pinnacle. This would be the, the best place for everybody to see you. And jump! Jump, Jesus! Because God says the angels will pick you up, and then everybody will know how great you are. Satan takes a truth and twists it because he wants Jesus to do it for a, a wrong motive. Can that happen to us? Can we know something that's true and all of a sudden we find out that we want to do that truth for a wrong motive that glorifies us more than God? 
have to watch our hearts that way, but those are some things that come to mind as I hear this situation. And Jesus more or less says to them, hey guys, you know what, I'm not going to go with you right now. You go ahead. He says these words. He says, I'm not from here. The world hates me. The world can't hate you because you're part of it. You go. Friendly words to your brother. And then this is what he says. He says, you go to the feast. I am not yet going to this feast because for me, the right time has not yet come. And these words, the right time. I know for you, if you've been following in John, this reminds me right away of chapter 2 and the wedding in Cana. Mary comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, there's no wine. Can't you do something? And he says, woman, it's not the right time. And now he says, brothers, it's not the right time. You don't understand. I'm on God's timetable, not on your timetable, not even on my own timetable. I'm following my father's lead. We need that kind of discernment as well in our lives, spiritual discernment. Just wrote this little quote down, and it just says, the, the thing that has our attention directs our intention. Whatever you put your focus on life is going to be the motive for why you do what you do. Are you worried about security? Are you worried about wealth? Are you worried about family happiness? If you make that your top priority, all your intentions are going to try to live that out. God says that's the road that might seem to lead to life, but it leads to death. Your motive needs to be honoring your Father. And when your focus is on God, your Father, your intentions go that way. And your actions reflect that motive. Jesus was a perfect example of that. He knew that his, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, that all those things were because his father wanted it so. He did it so that his father would be glorified. And you know what? His God and his father wanted to glorify him. That's the way it works in the Trinity. There's no competition, just perfect love, a perfect desire to glorify one another. And that's the type of relationship that God invites us into with him. We also learn, so we learn there about Jesus being in tune with his father. And the question we ask ourselves is, are we in tune with our father? Do we live our lives wanting to be in tune with our Lord so that what we do isn't just right for the right, like, hey, that's a good thing to do, but it's for the right motive. We also learn that Jesus was taught by his father. Um, the Bible tells us, chapter 7, if you're looking on there, it says that after his brothers left, Jesus decided to go secretly. He wasn't being deceptive. He was just saying, I'm not going there to make a big public hoopla. I'm going there quietly. I'm going to honor the Lord in this festival, and I'm going to do what my father tells me to when he tells me to. And so he goes to the festival, and as he's there, um, we're told that partway through the festival, this festival lasted seven days. It wasn't like a three-hour party. It was like a seven-day festival. The Bible tells us halfway through, he went to the temple and he started to teach. I think that's really important for us to know because he, he wasn't scared, right? If you, look, if you read earlier on in chapter 7 saying, I don't want to go to Jerusalem because, hey, remember what happened there? He didn't want to go back. It wasn't going to be good times in Jerusalem. He knew that. But he never let fear stop him from what God called him to do, what his father called him to do. So when it was time, he went to the middle of the temple, which would be the busiest place in Jerusalem, and he started to teach the word of God. 
When God asks you to do something, don't let fear get in the way. Just say yes. People ask, so who is this teacher? They said, the rabbi said, where does he get this teaching from? Oh, like, like the people are amazed with him, but who teaches him? He was never taught before. That's what verse uh, 15 says. How did this man get such learning without being taught? They were just amazed because uh, in their time, people were taught by other rabbis. So if you didn't have a rabbi to teach you, you didn't really have anything to go off. Their, their knowledge was secondhand. And so they're more or less asking Jesus, who's your teacher? You don't have a teacher. You're not worth listening to. In their opinion, if you didn't have a rabbi, your rabbi gave you standing in the sight of other people, just like for some of us, if you talk about your degrees, that gives you a standing with people. People say, well, who's your rabbi? You don't have a rabbi. Why are we going to listen to you? And, and Jesus says this. He says, just so you know, this teaching is not my own. The Jewish leaders thought, if you're just teaching your own thoughts... It's hubris. It's pride. You're arrogant. So that's what they're putting on Jesus. They're misunderstanding him, and they're putting that on him. You're just speaking for yourself, trying to get popularity. And Jesus says, my teaching is not my own. He says, my dad is my rabbi. He's my prophet. He's my teacher. My words come directly from God. Everything you teach, guys, is secondhand knowledge. You're You're interpreting scripture. When I speak, you hear the very words of God. No one can tell you that except for Christ. When you hear anybody preach from this pulpit, we do our best to present the word of God to you. But at the end of the day, unless we're just speaking the word of God, it's still our interpretation of it. When Jesus spoke, you hear the words of God. That's why he had such authority. It comes from he who sent me. It's my dad. Hey, guys, I'm not from around here even. I, I come from my dad. My dad gave me this job, and I'm faithful to him. Jesus insisted here that the experience of our authority of truth, that we need to have that personally. It's not enough to read books. It's not enough to hear messages. We need to be connected with our father. We need to have relationship with him and learn from him. I'm going to just give you a little example. I just want you to think of someone in your life right now that just by being in their presence, you want to be like them. There's something about their character that when you're with them and you see how they live, without saying a word to you directly, you want to be like them. I hope you know some people like that. I hope you are a person like that. Not that you're looking for it, but I hope people are with you and they say, oh, there's things about you I'd like to be like that. Jesus is saying, that when you're in the presence of God, you want to be like him. His love, his joy, his peace, his patience, his mercy, his holiness, you want to be like the God who you're with. And that's how you know that you've been in the presence of truth, not just by reading a book or listening to a rabbi or a preacher. If you're really going to understand, you have to meet the person who's the source of all these things. Jesus says this, verse 17, if anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching from, comes from God or whether I speak on my own. The word here that says if anyone chooses in the NIV could equally be desires. And I like that word better. If anyone desires to do my will. 
There's a psalm, a proverb story, Proverbs 23, verse 26. And it says, Oh, my son, give me your heart. Let your eyes take delight in following my ways. Be in relationship with me. See where I go and take joy when you see me at work. Know that you're invited into the work of God. Take delight. And if any, anyone chooses, anyone chooses this, God will lead you to himself. He will find out whether my teaching comes from God or not. This implies here that the Jewish leaders don't know God. This implies that they've never really been obeying God. These are the religious leaders. They're the ones who know all the laws. They're the ones who know how to do all the festivals and all the, all the things that the people come for every year. And he's telling them, because you don't know who I am, it tells me you don't know who my father is. And it tells me that you've never been obeying him. Because if you were obeying him, if your heart was focused on wanting to obey Father as he's revealed himself in the Old Testament, you would know me. And you don't. That's a wake-up call for us who grow up in a church, who know a lot of good things, lead people in a lot of good things. At the end of the day, our obedience to our Father is what matters, not to just good things that we've read or what we think we should do to be a healthy church. I put a picture here of someone who looks like they're kind of making an igloo around themselves of books. And I put it here because I like reading. I'm a, I'm a continual student. The Lord's put that in my heart. It's a good thing. Unless, unless the learning isolates you from listening to the voice of God. Because you think you know so much. Oh yeah, I know my Bible. Oh yeah, I took a class on that. Oh, I taught a class on that. Oh yeah, I did this. And you stop hearing the voice of God because you assume you know what God wants to be done. Heaven forbid. That's pride. I just want to encourage you. Don't live on what you assume God wants you to do. Live on what you hear God calling you to do because you spend continual time in his word and you ask for his Holy Spirit to soften your heart. Be in tune with the Spirit. Acknowledge that you might not be too in tune and ask God for help and he will say, you know what, if you obey me, I love those prayers. I love it when I hear my children say they desire to obey me but they don't know how to listen. I will meet you and I will show you. There's a quote from Oswald Chambers and it says this, says, the golden rule for understanding spirituality is not intellect but obedience. If man wants scientific knowledge, intellectual curiosity is his guide. But if he wants insight into what Jesus Christ teaches, he can only get it by obedience. Jesus is saying here, in this situation, obedience determines understanding the will of God. I can tell you this, if God has already revealed truth to you that you refuse to obey, why should he tell you more? He still will at times. He's so gracious. But I can point to my life and I can tell you times where I was a roadblock to God because he was saying, Doug, that has to be surrendered to me. Lord, I don't want to. Do you understand what that would cost me, Lord? Do you know how much I enjoy holding on to that? Even in my better moments, Lord, I, don't, I do want to give it to you, but it's just too hard. I don't think I can. God says, obey 
and I will show you the way. Made a little rhyme. Not on purpose. So Jesus is now looking at the Pharisees, and one of the things that they accused him of was breaking the Sabbath. Last time, this is uh, chapter 5, chapter 4, chapter 5, when he heals a man at the pool, right? He says, you broke the Sabbath. He says, guys, listen up. You already know that sometimes things kind of clash. There's two things that we're told to do and they clash. You already know that when that happens, you look at those two things and you decide which one's paramount and you obey that one and it keeps the honor of the law. Don't tell me you don't know that because you do it. Because you remember, you practice circumcision. Circumcision is what we're told to do when a baby is eight, years, eight days old. It's supposed to be circumcised as a sign of covenant community. And guys, sometimes that eighth day ends up on a Sabbath. And what do you do? You circumcise the baby, which actually breaks what you say is a Sabbath law. And so don't call me a hypocrite for healing a man and making him whole, because that's far better than a circumcision. I'll tell you what, God's aim is to restore mankind fully, so don't you call me a hypocrite. I was not breaking the Sabbath. You totally misunderstood. Then he says, Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. Other words, a better translation I think is stop judging by mere appearances so you can judge correctly or with right judgment. He's not talking now about judging people for their sins and condemning them. That's not the point. He's saying when you look at circumstances, make a good judgment. Don't just do what you think. Don't make, don't make it so that you can make your argument Ask God for spiritual discernment, and if you want it, God will give it to you. It's important that you learn to reason consistently. Faith isn't just a blind faith. We, we follow a God who tells us things quite clearly in his word. So reason consistently, and, and so if you treat that situation like that, where you say, oh, the law isn't broken on, on circumcising that baby, you should see. If you were really in tune with God, you wouldn't make an accusation against me. You would see that I'm a fulfillment of the law. I am not defiling it. Reason consistently. There's a need for discernment. Guys, he's saying, you're trying to obey the letter of the law. Actually, more than that, you're trying to obey the letter of your man-made rules, and you're totally missing the spirit of the law. And when Jesus asked a man about what's the spirit of the law of the Old Testament, this man said, well, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, you answered correctly. All the law can be summed up in that. Easy for us to know if we're obeying God. Is, is what we're doing leading us to love the Lord? Is it out of that motive? And is it helping us to, to love others? But when we have assumptions, assumptions make us go to wrong conclusions. So I'm going to ask you, Please don't assume things about God. Please don't assume things about your brothers and sisters in Christ. Please don't assume things about your co-workers. Ask God for wisdom. Ask people for understanding. And make a right judgment. Next point here is that Jesus was someone who was at home with his father. So he was in tune with his father. He was taught by his father. He was at home with his father. So Jesus is, uh, he goes to the courts, right? He goes to the uh, temple courts. He's starting to teach. And uh, he's hearing people argue about who he is. They all have all these different opinions. And it says, then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, he cried out. 
And uh, one commentator said, it's like Jesus said, okay, that's enough. I've heard enough of your misunderstandings. I've heard enough of your assumptions. I'm going to tell you like it is. So listen, this is what you need to know. And yes, you're wondering where I come from. And yes, you know me and, and you know where I'm from. But I am not here on my own. He who sent me is true and you don't know him. What you need to remember or need to be aware of is in Jerusalem, in this era, people didn't have last names. They were, there wasn't a Doug Friesen. It was more like Doug from Winnipeg. So where you're from tells people who you are. And Jesus at this point says, you know what? Who cares that you misunderstand? You don't realize I was born in Bethlehem. Who cares that you misunderstand that prophets can come from Nazareth? Who cares about that? What you need to know is I'm from heaven. If you had problems with Bethlehem, get your mind over that. I'm from heaven. I'm from my dad. He sent me. That's what you need to know. Stop bickering about little things. For I know him, and I know I am from him, and that he has sent me. It's God's, Jesus' knowledge of where he's from and who sent him that gives his words moral authority and his personality power. Because he always knows, he always remembers that he's from his father. That he is still part of a holy trinity. His identity has been established by his dad. And then Jesus says, you know what, I don't even care anymore about origins. I want you to be thinking about something different. I want you to know that I'm leaving soon. And he says, Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time. And then I go to the one who sent me. Guys, you need to know that I'm heaven bound. I'm going back to my father. No matter what happens to me this side of heaven, you need to know that's the end game. And that's what I'm living for, to be back with my father. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. And the Jewish leaders are talking, about, what are you talking about? Where, where I am, you can't come. Where is it that we're not allowed to go? Well, we don't want to go where the Gentiles are. Pfft, we don't want to be with them, so we won't go there. So you must be going to where the Greeks live. <laughs> they don't understand that he's going to heaven. And, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because Jesus is saying, guys, you're not going to be in heaven. That's hard. They don't understand it. They don't get it. And this is a total reverse of what Jesus said, total different message to what he told his disciples that you'll hear in John 14 in a few weeks from now, where Jesus says to them, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. For those of us who are Jesus' disciples, meaning that we surrender our lives to Christ, we trust in forgiveness, we trust that we're dead to ourselves and alive in Christ, he says to us, someday, guys, you're going to come with me. So are you living for today? Are you living to have life with Christ now? Because then heaven's going to be joyful for you because heaven's going to be all about being with Christ and those who love him. But if you say you don't want Christ in this life, you know what you're going to get when you die? You're going to get life without Christ. And what you're going to realize is that all this life, God has loved you continually. He has showered his blessings on you to let you know that he loves you. And you've said, pfft. And maybe you haven't said it quite that openly, but maybe you just don't care to talk to him every day and listen to him. And then God says, you might have a rude awakening someday and find out that because you never listened to me this side of heaven, you won't be able to hear me when you die. 
I don't want to be in that place. And God assures those who are disciples that you won't be. We're going to go into this last part of chapter 7, and this is where Jesus talks about being the source of living water, the giver of the Spirit. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles right now to chapter 7, and I'll be reading shortly uh, verses 37 to 44, not there. And uh, as you get to your Bibles, I just want to give you a bit of the context of the words that Jesus speaks. Right at the beginning of this chapter, it says that uh, the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near. And so what's important to know is that there are many different Jewish feasts, but there's three that are particularly important. That's Passover and Pentecost, which takes place in the springtime, this time of year. And then in the fall, there's what's called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths or Shelters. And so these are three important festivals that all the men in Israel were required to come to Jerusalem for that time to celebrate these festivals. And they were days long. And right now, in this situation, so we know that this is six months after chapter 6, because in chapter 6 they were celebrating Passover. Now they're doing the festival of tabernacles. And the significance of this is that they're celebrating God's provision for them while they're in the wilderness. It's specifically, last chapter was about God being the manna and God providing the manna. This chapter is about God providing the water. And it's called the Festival of Booths because their whole time that they were out in the wilderness, they were just in kind of intense, going from one tent to another. It was also the time where Jesus provided the tabernacle, the tent of his presence. So they live in tents for seven days to be reminded of their, of their, of their, their past. <laughs> and they're also reminded that Jesus gave them something that they thought wasn't possible to give because they were out of water. They were grumbling and they were complaining. And they said, where's the water? Why didn't you leave us in Egypt? And Jesus said to Moses, go strike that rock and water is going to spring from it to, feed the, to give to the people. And so at this festival, they remembered that God miraculously gave water in the desert. And every day for seven days, the priests would go to a pool, get a bowl in a golden bowl and bring it to the temple and they would pour it out as an offering, as a thank offering to the Lord. We remember what you did and we know that you still are the one to do that. For seven days, they do that once a day. On the seventh day, they'd do it seven times, and they'd walk around the altar seven times. And as they walked around the altar, I believe what they were remembering was the people walking around the city of Jericho that was not supposed to be destructible. <laughs> and they walk around it, and <laughs> the walls come down. This is the most joyful celebration of the year. And these are the words that we hear Jesus speak in that. Please stand with me as we read these words. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, who those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing these words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Christ. Still others said, how can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that Christ will be from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Please be seated. Here again, when we talk about Jesus not living in fear, the, uh, it says here that no one could lay a hand on him. He stayed away from Jerusalem till the proper time, but no one could lay a hand on Jesus until God said it's time. He was protected by his dad. 
So just going to quickly go over these verses here because they're hugely important as we remember the significance of today in particular. And that is this. So Jesus says these words, if anyone is thirsty, he should come and drink. I hope this reminds you again too of the woman at the well, right, who was wanting to draw water. And he says, come, if you, if you asked me for water, you would have water that would quench your thirst forever. That's so important to know. Jesus offers people to be quenched. I have to ask you, are you thirsty? Do you desire a relationship with God? There's seasons of my life where I'd say, no, that's not true. And I say, Lord, then please change that desire because you've at least made me aware of my lack of desire. And that's a gift. So Lord, help me to desire you because I want to be thirsty. I want to soak you in like a sponge. I want to soak you in like a sponge. And when I'm full, I want you to squeeze me and I want it to flow. That's kind of the message that God's given. He wants that for us. Come and drink. This is an invitation to a personal connection with a living God. It's not just intellectual assent to, yes, I believe what the Bible says. It's, yes, I want to come and drink of God. I want his Holy Spirit living in me. He says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water flow from within him. Now, we don't know for sure which passage Jesus was referring to, but we do know this story about Moses hitting the rock and the water coming out of What a beautiful picture. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that Christ is the rock. When you read that story, that Christ is the rock. Christ is the source of the living water. And when it says flow from within him, the actual translation is from his belly. And in that time, the belly was the source of emotions. So in your very being, where you think, where you feel, God will flow out of you if you surrender to him, if you just give yourself to him, if you say, Lord, I'm thirsty and quench me, he will do that. In the Old Testament, it was like hitting the rock, there was an artesian well, and Jesus says, I'm better than that. I'm a, I'm a living water, I'm a living river that will flow through you. And just here to, to acknowledge that he says, by this he meant the spirit, that this living water, he didn't want to just leave it to, okay, what in the world does that mean? What's going to happen? He says, it's the Holy Spirit, guys. And it's not here yet. You don't have the chance to have it yet. It's coming. Something, I still have to do something. He doesn't say this to him yet, but I still have to die on the cross. I have to be risen again. I have to ascend to my Father. And then you will get the Spirit. He says it couldn't be done yet because God's not glorified. Today, guys, I want you to know this. For each one of us who has the Holy Spirit in us, that is a confirmation that God is glorified that he sits at the right hand of his Father, that it's true that he is coming again and someday he will take us into an eternity with him where there is no sin. There is just perfect love and joy and peace. There is just perfect unity with God and all those who love him. That is the hope that we have in Christ. It's not just heaven someday where there's no sickness, no tears. It's the hope that we are with Christ and those who love him forever and we can taste it now. We're supposed to have it now. That's the testimony to the world. Is your hope that every thirst that you have that God can quench? Or do you fill up your own cistern? Do you try to get your thirst quenched in your own ways by looking to other things that are less than God? And then do you find they're lacking? And then do you wonder how you find yourself in that position? And if God was good, my life not, would not be this way. God says, I am here to be your living water. The Holy Spirit is in you for that purpose. And I have to say, I stifle the Holy Spirit all the time. 
And I pray and pray that that's going to be less and less. But every time I say no to what God is leading me to, I am stifling the Holy Spirit. Every time I know there's a sin that I willfully commit and I'm not willing to surrender to Him, I'm stifling the Holy Spirit. I don't want to block the Holy Spirit in my life. And I have to say, Lord, you need to change my desires because sometimes I desire things that aren't you. And you need to change that, Lord. You know, we have special holidays in the church calendar. And for the most part in North America, we celebrate Christmas. Christmas is not a day in the church that is celebrated about Christ's birth. We celebrate his incarnation. We do celebrate Passover. You know what we're supposed to celebrate today? Today is Pentecost Sunday. Today is the day that Christ said his Holy Spirit came into his people. Flames of fire came above their heads and they spoke in tongues so that everybody could hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Heaven forbid that we lose the passion of what that means for us today. We have the Holy Spirit in us. And I can confess, I want to know more what that means because I don't understand that fully. So Lord, help me know what it means to walk in step with your Spirit. Lord, help us do that as a church because that's the only way that we will really impact your glory in this world so people can come to know you. Today is Pentecost. And my challenge to you today is to thank God over and over again, every time your mind goes back into God, thank Him that you have the blessing of the Holy Spirit in your life. And if you don't have that yet, that you say, Lord, thank you that you've made me aware that such a possibility exists, and I surrender to you. I give my life to you. And I don't do it perfectly, but I will do it to the best of the ability you give me. And I know that I will mature as your Holy Spirit makes me more like Christ. That's the hope we have as a church. And let's praise God for that. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up as I close this in prayer, and Pastor Ralph will close us in a word after. Lord, we thank you so much <clears throat> that you are our living water. And for myself personally and as a church, I confess, we confess that often we overlook the wonderful privilege we have of abiding with you. And we get our eyes on other things, even things that we think are good, that are helpful, and we get our eyes off of you and we're not in tune with you. We don't really listen to you, so we're not taught by you. And we don't necessarily, Lord, in the moment live in the power of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we want that to lessen. More and more, Lord, we want you to have your way in us as a church, as individuals, so that most of all that you are glorified, that we are sanctified, and the world can see the hope of you. So we surrender to you and we thank you for the amazing gift that you are to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes God wants to talk right from his heart to your heart. And when he does, he uses pictures. That's what Jesus did. The picture of being thirsty and having that thirst taken away. The picture of a mighty wind blow out the cobwebs of our spiritual mind and help us to see clearer. The picture of a fire resting on our heads to show we've been purified. Picture of people not speaking in tongues like some strange thing but telling the message 
in everyday language of all the different people with their own languages. The picture of God's word moving within us. Oh God, help us to admit to ourselves how thirsty we are. How we long to get a clearer view of who you are. How we long to be cleansed. And then in joy and in excitement, how we long to spread your love to those around. Bless us as we journey under your call. Amen.